That gliding baseball rag. See the pitcher throw and strike him out. You got him going. Uh-oh. That gliding baseball drag. Don't you be a quitter. Show him you're a heavy hitter. Some classy curve the pitcher twirling. Go on, kids. Spin without a whirling. Hey, soak it out. Soak it out. Make a home run. Ball. Strike. Stay hit. First base. Make second. You're a bird. Keep it going, sonny. Make me win a lot of money. Don't stop until you're touching third. You're a holy terror. Center fielder made an error. Slide, slide. You made a good beginning for you know that your team always makes a winning when you play ball and sing that baseball rag. Hello there, everybody. Welcome to the Friday, April 21st, 2023 edition of Free Baseball. I'm your host, Robert Cadera. Today, we'll be looking at a very special place and time in baseball history, one that has personal significance for yours truly. In the second half of today's show, we'll identify the unsung hero from last week's program and have a new trivia question for next week as well. Can we have a little baseball music, Jane? Okay, everyone, we're going back in time now to Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. The year is 1953, April 8th to be exact. That's 70 years ago this month. It's been cold and wet for nearly a week. At 10.05 a.m., I'm a four-year-old kid bundled in my winter coat playing in our backyard sandbox. My mother suddenly appears at the back door calling to me to come inside and watch something on the television. Now, this is the only time I can recall ever being told to stop playing and come indoors to watch TV. So I sit on the gray shag carpet in front of our 21-inch Capehart black-and-white TV. My mother and grandmother sit behind me on the couch. On the TV screen we see the old downtown Milwaukee Road train station. The morning Hiawatha from Chicago has just arrived. A couple of minutes later, an ordinary-looking man in a full-length winter coat descends the steps of the train, a suitcase in his hand. My mother points to the TV screen. There's excitement in her voice. That's the great Warren Spahn, she says. Over the next 12 years, I will come to know a lot more about Warren Spahn, who becomes at that moment my one and only and favorite baseball player. Spahn was the first, but over those next 12 years, there will be others I come to meet and know. Lou Burdett, Eddie Matthews, the great Henry Aaron, Gene Conley, Johnny Logan, Ray Crone, Carl Sawatsky, and even Sibby Sisti. Now, you may recognize those names as members of the great Milwaukee Braves teams of that era. 
But I did not only get to see them on the field, I met them in my personal life, even as a young boy. And therein lies the heart of this story. The Braves, you see, were not just Milwaukee's team. Its players were our neighbors, friends, church members, paper route customers. The ballplayers' kids were our playmates, our Little League teammates. We knew them as people and not just as professional ballplayers. Now, I could go on for hours, but instead I'm just going to tell you a few things. Being as young as I was, my familiarity with Braves baseball started over the radio. I didn't attend my first game until two years later during the 1955 season. My first remembrance of listening to Earl Gillespie and Blaine Walsh do their radio broadcasts was on Monday, May 25, 1953, Memorial Day Monday that year. The Braves faced the Cincinnati Redlegs. The Braves scored six in the first, three on the first of Eddie Matthews' two home runs that game. They knocked Red starter Harry Perkowski out of the game before he finished a single inning. Milwaukee upped the lead to 10 to nothing by the third inning. Not much of a contest as far as the score went. An old guy by the name of Max Zirkant, who looked like a butcher, was the starter for the Braves. He came into the game with a 5-0 record, but the best was yet to come. Max struck out the final red-leg batter in the second inning, then struck out the side in both the fourth and fifth innings. He was one strikeout away from tying the then Major League Baseball record for consecutive strikeouts by a pitcher when the skies opened and the game was delayed by rain for 35 minutes. Sircant came out when the play resumed and he fanned Reds catcher Andy Semenik to tie the record of eight strikeouts in a row. 1953 was Max's only year as a Milwaukee Brave, but I will never forget that game. My second radio memory took place the following year, on June 3rd to be exact. 18-year-old bonus baby Joey Jay made his first and only start of the year versus Cincinnati, and things did not go well. After three innings, the Braves trailed four to nothing, but they battled back to tie the score in the seventh. But Johnny Temple's single the following inning gave the Reds a 5-3 to three lead going into the ninth. The Braves had a man on second with two outs. Braves catcher Del Crandall came to the plate. Now, you ought to understand, I listened to this game on a radio in the barber shop on State Street in Wauwatosa. I was getting my birthday haircut. And the guy who was cutting my hair stopped. He said he had to hear the game. He wanted to find out whether Crandall would come through. Now, Dell was facing a hard-throwing right-handed Frank Smith who was having a really good year that year. The count went to 2-2. Two and two. Then Dell hit a foul ball. 
and then another, and then another, and then another. I had to go to the bathroom as soon as my haircut was over, but Crandall didn't care. He fouled off 12 pitches in a row, the 12 most painful pitches of my young life. It all taught me that Yogi was right when he said, It isn't over till it's over. I didn't actually attend a game until the following season on the 4th of July. The St. Louis Cardinals were in town, and it was the first view I ever had of Stan the Man Musial. But that wasn't the highlight of the day for me. Every time the Braves were home for a Sunday doubleheader, they used to open the right field gate after about the fourth inning of the second game to let people out and go home. My Uncle Phil, who took us to that game, knew the guard at the right field gate, so he would take us any time there was a Sunday doubleheader at County Stadium, and that guard would let us in. We took whatever good seats were empty, and that day we found three seats right behind home plate, and Uncle Phil, my brother Dave, and I snuck into them. I don't actually remember the outcome of that game, but seated in front of us were the parents of a kid who was playing right field for the Cardinals that day. Bill Verdon's parents had driven to Milwaukee from Michigan to see their son play Major League Baseball for the first time. They told us of how they followed his exploits on radio, but now we're getting to see him in person, and how proud they were. And with good reason. Bill won the National League Rookie of the Year award that year. Over the next decade, I saw hundreds of games at County Stadium. But one game above all others stands out, and that was Game 1 of the 1958 World Series against the Yankees. My buddy Joe McBride's dad was a writer for the Milwaukee Journal, and he got us a couple of tickets to sit down the left field line. So many memories flash across my mind from that game even now. Warren Spahn starting for the Braves against Whitey Ford. Spahn going all the way for a 10-inning complete game. It was my first glimpse of Mickey Mantle, the hated Hank Bauer who hit a homer off of Spahnie as the Yanks fought back to take the lead at 3-2. Ryan Duran coming in in relief, throwing his first warm-up pitch all the way onto the screen behind home plate. Wes Covington hitting a sacrifice fly in the eighth inning to tie the game. And Billy Bruton with a game-winning single in the tenth inning, a walk-off hit. That was a game I will always remember. But aside from the games, there are so many personal memories I have of the players. Milwaukee was a relatively small town back then, about 600,000 people by far, the smallest town in the majors. But it was like having small-town baseball with major league stars all around us. Not just in the games, but in other areas of our own lives. 
I remember Ray Crone, a right-handed pitcher, attending our church every Sunday at 9.30 Mass. I remember Johnny Logan speaking at our school's mother and son breakfast. I remember playing ball with Carl Sawatsky's son, John Paul, when they lived next door to my cousins. I remember going tobogganing with my cousins and meeting Gene Conley and his kids and playing Little League Baseball against Warren Spahn's son, Greg. I remember that my cousin delivered the Milwaukee Journal to Henry Aaron on his paper route, and I remember meeting Henry some years later. I remember meeting Eddie Matthews in person and being surprised that he didn't seem as tall in real life. But my two favorite personal notes. One was speaking to Sibby Sisti. Sisti was the 25th man on any team he ever played for, and he was on the Braves roster in 1953. It was some years later when I met him and asked about the experience. He said, I had the best year of any of the Braves that year. I was taken aback and I asked, how could this be? You only had 28 bats at bats that year. His response was, yeah, but like all the Braves, I got free shoes for my family, free milk, free groceries, free laundry services, free movie passes, and a free car. He smiled, and I had seven kids. As children, we tend to make heroes out of our favorite players, and I did the same with Warren Spahn. But sometimes that works against you. Spahn and Burdett shared a duplex during the season that was right on my way to a place called Hawthorne Glen. That was a park where me and my friends often gathered to play ball because they had actual baseball diamonds there with a mound and baselines and uh, and a backstop and all that. One Saturday morning, we bicycled along the route, slowing down when we pedaled past their house, hoping to catch a glimpse. On this day, the second-floor picture window curtain was pulled all the way open. We looked up, and there, in full view, was my hero, the great Warren Spahn, as my mother had said, vacuuming the rug in his underwear. Ah, well, he's still the greatest left-hander of all time. Thank you for letting me share those memories with you. But that fanfare means that it's now time for Unsung Heroes. That's the part of the show where we focus on players that have been forgotten or kind of lost in the mists of baseball time. Last week's Unsung Hero, as you might recall, won 247 games. He led the major leagues in saves twice when he was 47 and 48 years old. He didn't win his first game until he was 25 years old. 
and even though he's not in the Hall of Fame, he retired with more wins than Hall of Famers Joe McGinnity, Ed Walsh, Three Finger Brown, Stan Kowaleski, Herb Pennock, Dizzy Dean, Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale, Juan Marshall, and Whitey Ford. You might recall his best pitch was a spitball and that he played in the major leagues for 23 years. Were you able to figure it out? Well, I know a couple of guys who got it right, members of the Old Farts Baseball Club here in Albuquerque. The guy we are talking about, of course, is Jack Quinn, often known as Jack Pecos Quinn. He played forever. Nobody quite knows where he came from. The uh, legend is he was born in the uh, eastern Pennsylvania coal country, but more recent research indicates he was probably born in Slovakia, then a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Yes, Jack Quinn came up to the big leagues in 1909 with the New York Yankees. He won 18 games for them the following year. He played in the Federal League, a short-lived two-year league, and won 26 games in 1914. He returned to the Yankees a couple of years after that, won 18 games in 1920. He was a teammate of Babe Ruth. He went to the Boston Red Sox two years after the Babe came from there. And then he had a second career, so to speak, as a relief pitcher primarily for Connie Mack's Philadelphia Athletics, although he did go 18-7 and seven in 1928 at age 44. He led the league in saves in 1931-1932, and he finally retired after the 1933 season at age 49 with the Cincinnati Reds. So hats off to Jack Picus Quinn, a guy that deserves to be remembered. Okay, this week for Unsung Heroes, we're taking a look at Baseball Brothers. You can say baseball is a brotherly game. If you go back to the origins, the first real professional season of 1876, you find baseball's version of the Wright brothers, George, Harry, and Sam, all played for Cincinnati. In the ensuing years, there have been 275 brother combinations who have played Major League Baseball. There's 13 examples of three brothers playing Major League Baseball. There's one example of four brothers playing Major League Baseball. And today's unsung hero, actually heroes, is the family that sent five sons to the major leagues. It's only happened once. Those are your clues. Five brothers who played Major League Baseball. Second clue, they were all born in Cleveland, Ohio. The third clue, the oldest of these five brothers is in the Hall of Fame. And our final clue 
if you total up all their at-bats in all those seasons for all five brothers, they had a pretty nifty 311 batting average. Not too bad. See if you can figure that one out, and I'll have the answer for you on next week's program. That's about it for today. I'd like to thank you for stopping by. The Free Baseball Podcast is brought to you by Black Range Publishing, the producers of the Gabe McKenna Mystery Books, and also of the Black Range Pub Podcast. You can find us at www.blackrangepublishing.com. Free Baseball can also be found on the following podcast platforms, Buzzsprout, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Audible. We're here every Friday during the baseball season. Thanks for stopping by today. Come on back next week. I'm your host, Robert Cadera. See you then.